Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted March 4th, 2022, titled Resurrection Evidence Grudge Match, Dr. Mike Lacona versus Apologia. Sometimes in life, you need to expect the unexpected. Like a chat with the man who literally wrote the book on Jesus' resurrection. Good to meet you, Apologia. Good to meet you. You had to have heard of him. I'm sure everybody of hears of everybody. Uh-oh. Okay. He's That's become trouble. a legend in the world of atheists. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. And every once in a while, those claims are about me. Regular viewers of my channel will know that examining the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is a central topic around here. So when the organizers of what they claim will be the ultimate Jesus resurrection debate, featuring two world-famous historians, Christian Dr. Mike Lacona versus agnostic Dr. Bart Ehrman, in a seven-hour, no-holds-barred, comprehensive battle, which you can pre-order early bird access to now at the link on screen for the absolute perfect Easter gift for the believer or non-believer in your life, wanted to get word out, naturally they reached out to me, and said that Dr. Lycona himself is so excited and enthusiastic over the event that he's willing to spare a few minutes of his time to come talk to you on your channel. 15 to 20 minutes? Yeah, so I'll set my timer. That of a known apostate and resurrection naysayer. How could I possibly say no? But on what topic should I use this precious time? For those in my audience who want me to debate you right at this moment, that's not. <laughs> this is not the time or place for that to happen. Maybe one day, we'll see. On one hand, Dr. Mike Lacona is one of my favorite go-to Christian sources to demonstrate the weaknesses in less scholarly Christian arguments. People who are familiar with my channel have seen your face a lot because you are my favorite Christian uh, historian, I suppose is the right word to come on and agree with me a lot because you have such <laughs> mike had some very important things that i think it's important for christians and non-christians alike to hear i disagree with mike lacona on a great many things but at least he's being honest and open about what he observes but i'll let resurrection affirming new testament scholar mike lacona explain that's why sophisticated scholars like dr lacona here's christian historian and resurrection apologist dr mike lacona with the more scholarly view among professional believers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's what I said. Well, thanks, uh, Pauligi. I appreciate that uh, very much, and I believe it's genuine, and it's it's uh, very good to be with you on the show. Appreciate it. So maybe I should use the time to try to rack up some gotcha sound bites for future Christian refutations. But then again, there's a few times where Professor Lycona has directly addressed resurrection content of mine. Should we talk about that? And I just want to kind of get your thoughts about a few things that where we've brushed up against each other a little bit in different times in the past, if that's all right with you. Sure. Sadly, with the clock running quickly and the friendly promotional nature of the occasion, I didn't feel I could push back too much on every detail I wanted to. 
I may elucidate a little here, with acknowledgement and your awareness that Dr. Lycona doesn't have a chance, at least today, to counter my additions. First up, the time when Mike and Gary Habermas critiqued a call I took on the atheist experience about martyred apostles. So I'm gonna start this video and let, you know, let me know when you guys wanna stop and we'll go at it like that, all right? There is good evidence for only two of the 12, uh, Peter and James, son of Zebedee. Those are the only two that we can have any level of confidence. We do have some evidence. Some of it is late. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, we can be certain of some, I think for Paul, Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. I think Sean has a couple of more than that. Um, I was the external reader for his doctoral dissertation. He did an excellent job. Um, we have some evidence for some of the others. It's just not as good as it is. Well, I think we basically landed in the same place that the really good evidence for apostle martyrs would be for Paul and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. And I think the, we both kind of agreed in general that the best evidence is for those three and the evidence for everyone else is at least somewhat lower. Yeah, I would and, agree with that. Yeah. So for me, as a historian, I would say for Paul, Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus, yeah, we can be certain that they died as martyrs. Um, the rest of them, I think what's important is to say that uh, they we've got enough evidence to be sure that they were willing to suffer and die for their beliefs. And that's, that's important because you don't die necessarily for something you believe is false. Mike? Mm -hmm. Follow-up question there was, if the traditions for their death isn't necessarily great well enough to tell us that they died, where do you get the traditions that you think are strong that they actually went and preached? It seems to me like after Acts 4 or so, kind of the 10 disappear from reliable history. What do you go with to say that they actually did put their lives on the line? Well, we've got um, nearly a dozen sources that talk about this. So you have Luke, who, who mentions, you know, the sufferings of Peter and Paul and the martyrdom of, of uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus or brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Right. Though I'm thinking um, specifically about the other 10, like the 10. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. That, that's starting off with that. Cool. Th they, then you've got John, of course, that mentions the, the death of Peter. So still Peter. So that, that'd be two in the New Testament. You have Tertullian, about the beginning of the third century, late second century, who mentions the sufferings of the apostles. It's late, but in prescriptions against heretics, Tertullian does mention Paul, Peter, and John, not the others. Let's see. Um, you've got uh, Paul, uh, Paul, who mentions his own sufferings. Of course, that's New Testament, but there you got some there. Um, you've got uh, Dionysus of Corinth, latter part of the second century, mid to later part of the second century. Dionysius mentions only Peter and Paul by name. Uh, Origen, who's probably the first quarter or so of the third century. Origen does add a new name to the list. Andrew. So I'll forgive the very late source for now. Polycarp, who is uh, probably the early part of the second century. Um, first third of the second century. Just Paul is mentioned by Polycarp. Later tradition has him linked to John, but Polycarp himself doesn't say so. You have um, Ignatius, early part of the second century. Ignatius mentions preaching of Peter and Paul only. Polycarp pro probably knew the apostle John as well. Um, you've got Clement of, of Rome, 
who mentions the sufferings, probably the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. So you do have some, not only New Testament sources that are in first century, um, but you have some early second century sources like Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp. Um, and then you have some later second century and then some early third century. Um, so I wouldn't consider those to be too late. I mean, sure, you, the, the earlier, the better, of course. Right. Early second century is going to be plenty of sufficient there. But then when you get to the latter part of the second century, early part of the third, not quite as good, but still not bad at all. Um, it's when you get after that, that you start to, to see more of these detailed accounts of their martyrdoms. And they may be true. They may not be. We just don't know. But I, I think there's around a dozen sources that I've named are are pretty decent. Do, do those name apostles in general, or do they list off like Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon, Zealot, Matthias, that kind of thing? Um, boy, I'd have to go back, Paul Agui, and look at it. Um, okay. To be fair, I also had to go back and look each of those up. Uh, some of them, like, for example, um, you'll have um, Clement of Rome, early, very early first, uh, I'm sorry, that's the latter part of the first century, around the same time as John's gospel being written. In fact, a, an increasing number of scholars are placing it um, somewhere between the years uh, 67 and 69. Um, and I'm not sure which one I think. I'd probably go toward a little of the earlier ones because of some of the arguments that are, are given, one in particular, which I don't think has ever been answered adequately. But um, so you do have some also in the first century and early second century. Uh, Clement of Rome does mention Peter and Paul. Um, some of the others mention individuals. A number of them mention Paul. Um, but a lot of them also mention just how the disciples of Jesus suffered continuously for their gospel proclamation. But uh, unfortunately, at this point, I'd have to look it up to see That's fair. which ones they actually do. The reason this question is important is to demonstrate the evidential retreat of the Christian apologist when it comes to using martyred disciples to bolster Jesus' resurrection claims. The least sophisticated want to say that Jesus must have been risen because 12 disciples were eyewitnesses and died horrible deaths refusing to recant. This is nothing but a Christian urban myth that is not backed by evidence. I think, as you point out, you and I have this in common. I think there's also been a hyper-trust by many Christians who read martyrs and says, hey, they all died as martyrs, and they proclaim it. Well, I've made that claim in the past, so I repent on this show from making that before I did my research. That should be corrected as well. With insufficient evidence to back actual martyrdoms, slightly more sophisticated apologists will water down their claim to 12 eyewitness disciples who were willing to suffer and die. Uh, pun intended, I don't want to die on the definition of martyr. Right. That, that's really not what's most important. Mm -hmm. The question is, did these guys really believe they had seen the risen Jesus? And do they put themselves in harm's way, willing to suffer and die for this proclamation? Mike and the other apologist demonstration that these 12 were willing to suffer and die is that they went out preaching. But where exactly is the evidence that these men went out preaching? Mike seems to affirm today that it's simply the same sources for the martyrdoms which he admitted up front, are not as solid for anyone other than Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus. And that's fine, 
but when it comes to James, son of Zebedee, Thomas, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, or Simon the Zealot, the evidence that they even went out preaching to put themselves in harm's way is pretty thin, at least by my estimation. Don't let the Christians hide behind general grouping words like apostles and disciples to present the idea that the message was a dozen strong from day one. Most of these guys disappear from reliable history. And in that same line of questioning, I had answered the caller uh, speaking about the death of James, the brother of Jesus. And basically I was using the Josephus source and I classified it in a way it's basically as a, as a political death. We're not saying that they died for truth at that point. They may well have died for, for pissing someone off, which actually in the case of Jesus's brother, that's exactly why he was killed, not for his beliefs, which I, I knew someone like you would probably take exception to that. Uh, and you kind of mentioned that I probably should have fleshed it out with the account from Hegesippus and from Clement. That's entirely consistent but but that um, is not the only thing. That's just part. That's just Josephus's story. Fuller accounts are found in Hegesippus and Clement of Alexandria. According to those two, he died as a martyr. So just because Josephus doesn't mention the whole story, doesn't mean that we should think that you know we have no accounts of it. I guess my question is: Do you think that since I don't take the Hegesippus and Clement accounts to be politically reliable, do you think that I was somewhat disingenuous if I'm? sticking only to the Josephus source? Like, do you feel like in these conversations, I really should be linking to both of them if I don't take them as good historical evidence? You know, Clement of Alexandria is, is not the most reliable source. Um, so I can understand some hesitation there. Hegesippus, though, he's not that late. I, as far as I remember, and it's been a while since I've looked at this polygia, but um, Hegesippus, I think, is early second century. So I don't know that I would discount that because that would be very close to when Josephus reports, um, you know, the execution of James, the brother of Jesus. So, I, I yeah, I, I think Josephus' report is probably going to be the best just because it's an unsympathetic source and it's first century. Uh, whereas, you know, the others are going to be Christian sources. We don't know much about Hegesippus. Clement of Alexandria, again, he, he's not reliable at times. So, you know, he's going to have lesser weight. But, um, yeah. Okay. Does, does that answer your question? Well, I guess my, my question had kind of been, you know, do you think that I sort of interacting in these spaces, do you feel like I kind of have an obligation to bring up someone like Hegesippus if I don't necessarily think that they're a great source? Um, you know, to be honest with you, I'd have to just see the context in okay, the enough. interview that you're referring to, I guess that was a year or so ago. And yeah. I don't remember much of it, to be honest with you. I do That's remember fair. doing it. Um, but I, I don't remember much okay. uh, of what was said in there. Um, you know, there, I, I don't mind if a person doesn't mention all the sources, but if a person, and, and I don't recall what you said, to be honest with you, but if, if, if you said, we only have Josephus, hmm. probably not what you said, but if right. you said we only have Josephus, you know, that I'd probably hesitate over that. That's totally fair. So on the call, I summarized what Mike and I agree is the earliest and most reliable source for the death of Jesus's brother, James. 
I didn't mention later sources that I consider inaccurate legendary development, but I also didn't deny them. Let me know in the comments if you think I handled this information presentation well or not. In another conversation, I actually had a chance to offer you a question at an at a online stream, and I asked you about uh, a hypothetical. Consider a notion that Peter and Paul were the only actual eyewitnesses to the really risen Jesus. Our gospels and creeds would then be legendary stories. Do other lines of evidence exist that contradict such a scenario? And you focus largely on the gospels, which is fair, because of course uh, the gospels then at that point would have to be recording some legendary development that didn't actually occur. Um, if it was only Peter and Paul. Right. If So yeah. I guess the question is the, beyond the fact that the Gospels then would contain some legendary development. Is there anything historically, do you think, that makes it impossible that that there was only a handful of actual appearances and that maybe some of the other appearance? I guess the idea that, that some appearances really happened, but maybe some are embellished and, and largely legendary? Hmm. Okay. Fair question. Um. You know, I look at the earliest tradition, at, at least earliest uh, extant that we have that can date, I think that would be the oral tradition in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Right. Um, and that mentions three group appearances, three individual appearances, uh, one to the skeptic Paul. So, you know, the Gospels have group appearances. Um, of course, the oral tradition in 1 Corinthians 15 is not attempting to narrate things. Um, that's not the purpose. That's not a letter. It's a letter. It's not a biography. Um, so do the Gospels, uh, in terms of the appearances of Jesus, do they contain any legendary elements? Well, that's impossible to know, I think, uh, of whether they do. Um, I guess I was wondering if you saw anything like in church history or in the, like, do you think it's impossible timing wise that, that the legendary developments couldn't happen? Or was there any other outside constraint that makes it, you know, unplausible? Yeah, I do think it, it's, it's plausible that a legendary element could creep into it. I mean, in the um, uh, Lucian of Samosata's treatment of called concerning the passing of Peregrinus, he talks about the suicide of Peregrinus where he builds a very large fire and it makes a big public skeptical a spectacle of this and he climbs up and then he leaps into it and lucian says that just a little bit later he was passing by shortly after this happened and he saw an old man who looked very wise saying that he saw um if i remember right an eagle fly out from the fire he said he saw peregrinus fly out so i mean it's like this this elderly man according to Lucian, was making the thing up. Now, some have called that into question, um, whether Lucian was telling the truth there, because Lucian was a satirist um, who didn't care too much for Jesus. Right. Um, he mentions Jesus' crucifixion in, in uh, Palestine, and then he's mm -hmm. talking about the passing of Peregrinus here. Um, so, But either way, I think we recognize that an urban legend can pop up quite quickly. Um, and some will quote the uh, classicist A.N. Sherwin-White and saying, you know, that, um, what is it, a, a generation is not enough time. Right. But he's not saying that it's not enough time for a legend 
to develop. He's saying it's not enough time for that legend to replace the historical core. While Mike is technically correct here, the trouble with this often cited A.N. Sherwood White quote is not the distinction between legends and legends with a historical core. The problem is that in White's 1960 book, Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament, the classicist isn't drawing a conclusion from any sort of research. There was no literature review, no exhaustive comparative study. White described a single data point, 5th century Herodotus, and his description of the assassination of Hipparchus, and drew entirely arbitrary extrapolations and conclusions from it. With this kind of methodology, I could look at Barack Obama and extrapolate that every U.S. president has been of African descent. See my Case for Christmas Part 1 video for a full breakdown on this quote, but the short version is that no apologist should use it. And so you still have the apostles that are out there for several decades who are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and appearances to individuals, to groups, to friend and foe alike. So whether the Gospels contain any legendary elements, whether they amplify the resurrection narratives um, any, um, it's, I, I think it's impossible to know whether any of those are in, in that sense. But I think the core of it is, is, is likely true, that um, on Sunday morning, they found, the women found an empty tomb, um, and that shortly afterward, uh, his disciples in individuals and in group settings experience, had experiences that they were convinced were the risen Jesus appearing to them. You and I are on the same page there. I think it's impossible without at least a few people having something genuine happen. So Dr. Mike Lacona agrees with me. There's nothing impossible about legendary development prior to the Gospels being written down, and that there's no way for a historian to differentiate which is which potentially including group appearances for risen Jesus. I hope Dr. Loke catches that. In the final episode of your season six of your podcast, which if no one listens to your podcast, it has the best intro song of any podcast <laughs> that exists. It's I love it. It makes me smile every time. So thank you for that. <laughs> Kurt asked you about the possibility of Jesus ending up in a mass grave in that episode, but unfortunately the conversation kind of went all over. You never cycled back to that. Oh, okay. So um, I guess I wanted to ask you the same basic question. Yeah. What's sort of an alternative view to the empty tomb? Would it be something like the wrong tomb, a mass or a mass grave uh, approach? Well, let's say even, but if it was just rather than a stone cut tomb, you know, he was put into an unmarked grave. Does that kind of have some explanatory power for, you know, for example, for people not being able to produce the body to refute claims or, or not need, not needing to have a stolen body or anything like that. Like would it, and this is what kind of what Kurt asked you, would, would it, would a burial like that have any kind of explanatory power? Do you think? Let me approach it maybe just a little bit differently and, and, um, and then follow up with me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got some really good evidence that although it was the uh, practice of the Romans throughout the empire to either leave the crucified victims on their crosses to be devoured by insects, birds of prey, um, and dogs uh, later on, 
as well as removing them from their crosses and just putting them in a shallow pit, covering all over with a little dirt and letting the dogs finish the, the corpse up. Um, that was not the practice in Jerusalem. And we know this because uh, you've got Josephus in his um, Jewish Wars, Book 4, Section 317. He talks about how the Idumeans, Jews who had been uh, requested from some uh, zealots who were imprisoned by the other more moderate Jews in Jerusalem at the time in the 60s, that they had appealed to the Idumean Jews to come down and help them. And the Idumeans came down and they freed the Jews and they, uh, in the zealots in prison, and then they killed a bunch of the more moderate Jews. And Josephus reports that they, um, the more moderate Jews were incensed because before that time, which is again, is probably around 67, 68 AD, you've got, um, it says before that time, it was the custom of the Jews to remove the crucified and the condemned and to give them a burial prior to sunset. Um, uh, that would mean a proper burial and to be just thrown into a common pit um, just would not have, have, have worked in that sense. So they're going to get a proper burial, not necessarily an honorable burial, but a proper burial. Um, and then, so then you've got the fact that you have uh, Yehohanan from, um, that was discovered in archaeological remains in the 1960s, I think 1967. Right, the nail discovered. in the foot, yeah. Yep. And then since then, this isn't widely known, but there have been several more remains of crucified victims uh, discovered in ossuaries in Jerusalem. So, uh, which means that you have, uh, and these ossuaries were in effect from 30 BC to around the year 70 AD. It was a full century. So this would suggest that even those executed received proper burials and they were put in tombs until their bodies decomposed. And then they would take the remains and put them in an ossuary and give that uh, a final burial. So I don't see any evidence the, of that they were given this dishonorable burial of being just thrown into a pit or left on their crosses like was common throughout the rest of the, of the Roman Empire. So typically, most scholars now, the debate is not whether they were the crucified victims or Jesus might have been thrown into a pit for the dogs to eat them like John Dominic Crossan would suggest. It is more along the lines of, when Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus, was it an honorable burial, as the gospel accounts suggest, or just was it a plain old burial, um, maybe even a dishonorable one that is thrown into that he's thrown into the tomb, but still th put into a tomb nonetheless. Unfortunately, we ran out of time for me to, to talk to chat back on that one, but we will uh, maybe reserve that for, for another day. For a full detailed treatment on all of these Jesus burial topics, see my Three Christians Bury Apologia on Jesus' Burial video. Very briefly, in the first century, there was a superstitious practice of using crucifixion nails in the burial rituals of non-crucifixion victims. There's good evidence that any accommodations made for Jewish customs if any at all, would not have extended to criminals who committed treason, which is the charge against Jesus put forth in the Gospels. And notations of exceptions solidify the general rule. Take all that for what it's worth, but Mike didn't engage in the hypothetical at all. 
whether a non-stone tomb fate for Jesus' body would have explanatory power for so-called resurrection facts and apologetics. I contend that it would. Sadly, we ran out of time. I do have some other thoughts, but that's that's fine. Because the most the thing we're most important about today, learning about this debate that you're having with Bart Armour, which I'm so excited about. And if you could just take a little bit of time and tell us why this debate is different than the other debates you've had, what's going to be cool about it? <laughs> well, um, so... Bart and I have had six previous debates, uh, two on Justin Briarley's uh, show. We've had, um, I think, yeah, we've had another one, a written debate on the historical reliability of the Gospels. And then we've had uh, three others. Uh, let's see. <laughs> we've had two on the resurrection of Jesus. So anyway, there's six so far. And then um, this is going to be our seventh. And what's different about this one is it's like an all-day event. So most debates will last about two and a half hours, two to two and a half hours. This one's going to be all day. So um, it's going to allow us more time to give our, our case. It's going to be allow us more time to offer rebuttals of to what our opponent has said and, um, and give plenty of time for audience Q&A. So I think it's going to be a, just a, a real informative time that viewers who are really into this very important topic, I mean, it's important for Christian and non-Christian alike. For a Christian, if Christ rose, Christianity is almost certainly true. If Christ did not rise, Christianity is certainly false. And so this will be an all-day event. I'm looking forward to it. Bart's a good guy. We've become friends over the years. We have strong disagreements on this, and it'll probably be a spirited debate, but it'll be collegial. So I'm looking forward to it. If you want to be ringside for this monster debate event or to watch the replay over and over, you'll need to sign up. And you can do that at tinyurl.com slash BartDebate, as seen on screen and in the description. And if you use that link, you'll be helping this channel, which is greatly appreciated. I can't wait for this, so you'll definitely be seeing me there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll look forward to it, Paul. Absolutely. It's been a pleasant conversation with you. For more interaction for and against the scholarship of Dr. Mike Lacona, tap on the thumbnail on screen now for the Apologia versus Lacona playlist, and I'll see you over there. Until next time, later. <laughs>